This will be our last Sunday to dig into this great book for a while. The next couple of Sundays will be Advent-focused on the incarnation of our great God in Jesus Christ, and then New Year's Day, and then Covenant Renewal, so it will probably be mid-January before we open this book again. But today, let's continue to look for the glories of Christ, to seek to understand them. I would just remind you here again, as someone has said, that all, almost all of our thoughts about Christ, about Jesus, are too small. Dane Ortland said recently, I'm learning that the more I see of Christ's gospel, all that the scriptures tell us about the good news of Jesus, the more I see how little I see it. For every inch gained in gospel understanding, I gain a foot in seeing how little I grasp it. And he gives the word picture of peering over the edge of grace and seeing a hundred foot drop which enables me to also see that the cliff extends at least another mile beyond that. We are continuing to unpack what we're calling the middle or second section of, of Colossians that focuses on Christ's preeminence or supremacy and sufficiency being defended against things that are not according to Christ. Today we will see particularly... Uh, as Paul continues to turn us away from the philosophies that can captivate us to be filled with who Christ is and with what he has done as Paul impacts more of that. So we've been noting, in order, go back to chapter 2, verse 4, in order to not be deluded by plausible arguments, chapter 2, verse 8, or taken captive, held hostage by the world's really empty elemental philosophizing psychologizing, trying to explain, trying to provide answers for how humans ought to live, what our purpose is. You can see our culture certainly doing that, some of which seems to make sense at some point, but ultimately are actually harmful and don't help us in our obeying of chapter 2, verse 6, walking in Christ and becoming ever more rooted. But again, as we noted last week, Paul doesn't, God doesn't have Paul spend a lot of time on what's wrong. He does in verse 8. But we don't have a series of podcasts then done by Paul ranting and ripping on all of the wrong philosophies. We don't have any blog going. He doesn't write a book on it. He immediately turns our focus in verse 9 and now continuing through our text today in verses 13 to 15 to the true help for all of life in every way telling us what Christ has already accomplished, what he's done in us, that is sufficient for every need that we can possibly have. As we noted last week from Garrett Dawson, God has nothing else to give us than what he gives us in Jesus. But getting Jesus is getting everything. So we noted last week in verses 10 to 12 that in salvation and in Christ, God circumcises or puts off the body of the flesh. God buries us in baptism with Christ. God raises us up with him through faith. And now today, we're just going to continue in that look. God makes those dead in trespasses and uncircumcision alive with Christ. God forgives all trespasses through Christ, 
nailing that record to the cross and Christ in his resurrection particularly, but also in his death, has disarmed, disabled, triumphed over, and shamed the evil rulers and authorities under him. One person said of this text, this is a rainforest of gospel timber. Would you follow along as we allow God to tell us what he does through his son in verses 13 to 15. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So Lord, again, as we come to this powerful, gospel-rich text, we ask again that you will open our minds that are so dull and so distracted by the busyness of our lives to understand your revelation better than we ever had. Open our spiritual eyes, the eyes of our hearts that are still so weak, even though we have seen glories, still don't see nearly enough to see more. And open our hearts, please, where you really are transforming us by your grace to love you and the gospel and the good news of Christ more and more. We ask that you'll use this powerfully in our lives for your glory's sake. Amen. So, verse 13, we'll just title each of these uh, Christ. Well, I meant to say this in introducing it. Each of these verses presents a problem somewhere. It's not worded always exactly as, here's the problem. But it's somewhere in the text, a challenge for us as humans, which, even if we wanted to pursue God, would make it impossible for us to do so. And then every single verse also provides the solution or the provision. It's always going to be through Christ and what he does in his grace. So, verses 13 and 14 open with telling us two truths about ourselves that are not pleasant, not nice, not encouraging to us, not building us up in any way. But they are meant to. They're meant to reveal the truth about us so we aren't deceived about that in any way. For it isn't until we realize how bad, how utterly wicked we are, we really, really are, before we will see our desperate need for Christ. Otherwise... At best, he's just a nicety we add in our lives to try and make us feel a little better spiritually or religiously. So yes, the truth hurts, but if it doesn't, that's a bad sign too. So John, the Apostle John in his epistle said, if we say we have fellowship with him, with God, with Christ, while we walk in darkness, while we just continue to be like everybody else, while we just blend God and sinning, we think in our minds, John just says we're lying. We're lying to ourselves and we're not practicing the truth. And two verses later, if we say we have no sin, we are tremendously deceived and the truth isn't in us. So as Paul Tripp said in his devotional this week, when God accuses us of being the problem, there are only two options. Deny the accusation Attempt to shift the blame 
or accept the charge and make a desperate confession. And that, I pray, is what God does in each of our hearts even today. So painful truth number one that shows up in verse 13 is death, deadness, dead in your trespasses. Without Christ, apart from Christ, there is no way for the spirit of a human to be alive to God. So just as we need God to give us physical life, we need God to give us spiritual life as well. Marshall Siegel says we were dead in our sin, not sick, not broken, not misguided, not flawed, but dead. From the day we were physically born, we were laid spiritually in a grave of our own making with hearts spiritually and emotionally incapable of loving Jesus. Sin swallowed every ounce of our hope, and yet we still loved our sin. Saw a quote this week by Spurgeon that didn't show up on the slide. Sin causes a madness which makes sick souls dream that they are in sound health. So Paul says here, and he says it also almost verbatim in Ephesians 2, that what kills us completely dead is our trespasses or our sins. So John Stott says about this thought, lots of people who make no Christian profession whatever, who even openly repudiate Jesus Christ, appear to be very much alive. And he notes an athlete has a vigorous body, a scholar has a lively mind, a film star or some other celebrity has a vivacious personality. Are we to say that such people if Christ has not saved them, are dead? Yes, indeed, we must and do say this very thing. For in the sphere or the realm which matters supremely, which is neither the body nor the mind nor the personality, but the soul, they have no life, and you can tell it. They are as unresponsive, implied to God, as a corpse. So we should not hesitate to affirm that a life without God, however physically fit, mentally alert the person may be, is a living death, and that those who live it are dead even while they are living. Perhaps it's helpful also to recognize this is talking about being dead, particularly relationally or in a relationship with God, that we don't really know him truly relationally, personally. We are estranged from him. And maybe the best illustration of that is the parable of the prodigal son. Twice in that parable, while the prodigal was away, the father said, my son is, and then he came back, my son has been dead, and now he is alive. Clearly, the son wasn't physically dead. He was estranged, relationally broken. He was separated there was no real affection. There was no reverence. There was no devotion to the Father. So that's the way Isaiah 59.2 portrays it. Your iniquities, your sins, your transgressions made a separation between you and God. And your sins have hidden his face relationally from you. John MacArthur puts this deadness this way. It's people who are unable to respond to spiritual stimuli, to be so locked in sin's grasp that one is unable to respond to God. The Bible and spiritual truth make no sense. 
Now, God has Paul go on and give a second description of how dead we are. It also includes the uncircumcision of your flesh, picking back up the word picture that he was alluding to in verse 11. Here in a positive to just say, here's an equation, spiritually dead, uncircumcised flesh are the same. He's possibly referring to the Gentiles, the uncircumcised Gentiles, who were outside of God's covenant. Ephesians 2 talks about this heavily. But it's also very possible here, I think, that he's given a spiritual description of not having one's spiritual or dead nature cut away by Christ so that there can be a connection with God. The flesh or the spirit is going to control human beings. So Romans 8, 7. If the mind is set on the flesh, it is hostile to God. It doesn't submit to God's law. It cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So that also has to be cut away. And both of those are answered, are solved. The solution is God makes those who are dead and uncircumcised alive, doesn't leave them in that spiritual grave or that spiritually dead condition with Christ, which is a stunning truth. Sam Storms, are there any more precious words ever uttered than God made alive together with him, we who were so dead in our sin? So just as God raised, Jesus raised people bodily while he was here, just as he rose from the dead or God raised him from the dead, both of those are truth, so he makes us alive spiritually in a whole new way and realm and dimension than we ever have been before. Where we were zombies walking through this life, we now have a whole new and vibrant nature and life with God. Here's how Peter put it in his letter. Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. So there's the relational piece, that we might be restored, or chapter one of Colossians, reconciled to God. Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive. There's the same expression, only Peter adds a little further direction on that, made alive in the spirit. So, Tremendous reality about Christ, number one. Verse 14, second situation, second problem is that man has, every man, woman, child, has a massive record of wrongs committed against God. Now, we've already noted in verse 13, the trespasses kill us. Here we're told the trespasses are recorded. Every single one of them recorded by a God who doesn't miss a single detail. These aren't just oops moments in our life, a couple or three or four or five regrets that we have at some point. This is an entire life. We are serial sinners, failing to obey God over and over and over. So many desires that we have that don't align with God and his word and his will. So many thoughts that go through our minds every day that dishonor God. So many attitudes, so many words, so many actions and not only acts of committing sin, but acts in which we omit, sins of omission that we know God would have us do that we don't. And now, a consequence, a new wording, another picture 
of what those trespasses do. They have legal demands or requirements imposed upon us by a righteous judge. And they stand against us. And I believe the New American Standard there uses the word hostile, which helps give you a picture of what stand against means. They are hostile to us with their legal demands or requirements. This is a debt that every human has toward God that no one can ever pay off, let alone pay off in full. It's an IOU that binds one to a full payment by a set date, and that date is our death date. We can't bribe the judge. We can't hire a lawyer that will get us out of some of the consequences or all of them, and there is no alibi that will get us off the hook. John Piper, no sin. No sin is ever merely passed over by God. None. It will be paid for in hell by the individual who committed it or by faith in Christ it will be paid for on the cross. This sentence and Nathan in his testimony talked about God as a just God. The sentence is not just a Brad credit report, report or record. It's not just bankruptcy. It's not just some jail time like the heresy of purgatory might imply. It's not just physical death as bad as that is. It is what the Bible calls eternal death because it is a separation from God in hell and in suffering under his wrath forever and ever. And again, no one escapes this when they die. Hebrews 9.27, it is appointed to man to die once. And after that comes judgment. And Revelation 20, particularly verses 11 and 12, describe this massive holy throne with God on it. Books that are opened in his courtroom, which would be the record of our debt that stands against us with its legal demands. All are judged by what they have done and sentenced accordingly. That's our problem. But God, again, in his grace, through Christ, provides the solution. In verse 14, and that is, and it actually starts at the end of verse 13, that God forgives all of our trespasses in his son. Now, there are lots of ways that the Bible describes forgiveness. Isaiah 118, that it is a changing of our sins from scarlet to pure white. Romans 4, 7, and Psalm 85, 2, that it's a covering of our sins. 1 John 1, 19, it's a cleansing us from our filth and stain. Hebrews 8, 12, God remembers our sin no more. Micah 7, 18, and 19, a pardoning by God and a passing over our trespasses, casting all our sins into the depths of the sea. But here, God has Paul depicted in a very unique very graphic, very powerful manner. Threefold. Number one, by canceling the record of debt. God writes across the IOU, paid in full by Christ the Son. Hence we sing, Jesus paid it all. The whole thing. There's no need for plea bargaining. There's no need to reduce our sentence. All are declared innocent in Christ. Another picture, he set it aside. So what stood between us and God, this record of debt, he takes and sets it aside so it is no longer hostilely standing 
between us and God. And then third, he nails it to the cross. Vivid word picture. Perhaps portraying the practice often done by the Romans of nailing the accusations of a person, hanging on the cross, on the cross itself above his head to be read by Hall. The song we sing by Horatio Spafford, It Is Well, captures this particular word picture in it when we sing, My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not the part but the whole, is nailed to the cross. I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. John MacArthur says forgiveness, depicted this way, is perhaps the most exciting and comforting doctrine in all of Scripture. It's hard to define one thing from God's grace as most exciting and comforting, but forgiveness is certainly a huge part of that. Trip again just recently. This Christmas story, the Christmas story, the baby is born so that those cursed and controlled by sin may be forgiven and freed forever. So today, even while we will in a few minutes focus on Advent, before that, we will remember Christ's suffering, death, and resurrection around the Lord's table. For that is what ultimately brings us that incredible forgiveness. And I would just insert this little caveat. This should be one of our biggest evangelism messages. See, the problem with Colossians 2.8, the philosophizing of the world, is that they don't address the sin issue. They deny it. But until the sin issue is taken care of, nothing else matters and nothing else ultimately helps. So may this be something where we're portraying God doesn't just make our life better. God doesn't just make us a better person. God doesn't just give us identity and purpose, though all of those are true. God takes care of our sin that damns us otherwise and frees us from the coming wrath of God. Hallelujah. Verse 15, still not done. We have another problem, the third one, and that is the enemy in the spiritual realm that has power over us. The problem is that there are legions of rulers and authority and forces probably beyond what we can count, much greater than us in both power and intelligence. Ephesians 6.12 gives us multiple descriptions of them using the same language, rulers, authorities, goes on to also describe them as cosmic powers and spiritual forces of evil that are all over controlling, ruling the spiritual darkness of this world. If it weren't for what verse 15 describes to us, we would be no match for them. Siegel again. We have little idea what power lies beneath the surface of what we can see. The rulers and authorities of darkness that prowl and tempt and deceive and corrupt. A hostile and global mutiny against the maker of heaven and earth. And the maker of them, by the way. Boy, does our culture incorporate all of this evil darkness into our storytelling. You think about our movies, you think about our books, all, so many of them captivated and caught up with this. But even those who would deny that that whole realm exists still recognizes 
we are not the lords of this universe, that there are greater forces than us by far. And for this, we also need Christ. The solution, and I'm going to take them in a little different order, debated whether to do that. I think God's order is perfect. Um, but the big point of this, where it leads to, is that Christ triumphed over them. In triumphing over them, he did two things. He rendered them incapable of destroying us, those Christ saves, and he humiliated them even more than they had shamed him on the cross. Marshall Siegel, again, I just appreciated this graphic description. Nothing could be weaker than hanging from the cross. They could have killed him quietly, but they wanted the whole world to see what he could not do. They wanted everyone to just see just how weak he really was. But what looked like weakness, however, could not have been any stronger. By attempting to prey on a seemingly defenseless man, his murderers unleashed the full intensity and brilliance of divine power. In the weakest moment imaginable, Jesus defeated the two most intimidating en enemies you have ever known, your sin and the armies of Satan against you. John Calvin goes on. There is no tribunal so magnificent, no throne so stately, no show of triumph so distinguished, no chariot so elevated as the gibbet on which Christ has subdued death and the devil, nay more, has utterly trodden them under his feet. Here's the way the writer of Hebrews uh, says it in Hebrews 2, that through death, Christ destroyed the one who has the power of death prior to that, the devil, and delivered all those who, through the fear of death, were subject to him to a lifelong slavery. And I would just remind you, this is now the third time that these rulers and authorities have been addressed in Colossians. They were a couple weeks ago in 2.10, and then they were earlier, a couple months ago, in 1.16. In, doing the, in triumphing over them, he put them to open shame, perhaps an allusion to the Roman practice of victory marches where after they conquered a people, they would bring in all of the people, all of the possessions, and parade them down the streets, celebrating their victory over them, mocking their weakness, humiliating them in every way that they can, making them know that they are not the most powerful beings around perhaps that's alluded to in ephesians 4 7 as well which says that when christ ascended on high he led a host of captives garland david garland says god made them a public example by showing how utterly impotent they were before this divine demonstration of love and forgiveness and how utterly helpless they were to deter the divine power the beautiful irony in this story is that they sought by his death and crucifixion to shame him, and it ultimately shamed them instead. That moment Jesus rose from the dead had to be the most horrifying, disheartening, demoralizing moment ever experienced by ever being when the spirit world that thought they had conquered Christ saw him rise. Third, he disarmed them. Disrobed is another translation. Weakened them dramatically. Made them subject to himself. And here, F.F. Bruce has quite a description. The very instrument of disgrace and death by which the hostile forces thought they had him in their grasp 
and had conquered him forever was turned by him into the instrument of their defeat and captivity. As he was suspended there, bound hand and foot to the wood in apparent weakness, they imagined they had him at their mercy and flung themselves upon him with hostile intent. But far from suffering their assault without resistance, he grappled with them and mastered them, stripping them of all their armor in which they trusted and held them aloft in his mighty outstretched hands, displaying to the universe their helplessness and his own unvanquished strength. Now they are disabled and dethroned, and the shameful tree has become the victor's triumphal chariot before which his captives are driven in humiliating procession. Oh, that we could see that. The involuntary and impotent confessors of their overcomers' superiority. Now, the wicked rulers and authorities are still permitted by God, though disabled, disarmed, still permitted to continue battling against Christ for the time being. The war is not over, but the decisive blow has been uh, given, struck, and they cannot, though they can do harm, they cannot overcome. Listen to these promises of God. 1 John 4, he who is in you, that's Christ in believers, is greater than he, anyone who is in this world or in this universe. James 4, 7, resist the devil, he'll flee from you. Romans 16, 20, looking forward, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet permanently and forever. And then Ephesians 6, a passage many of us are familiar with, describing the multifaceted armor that we can wear to be able to stand and be protected. And note that every piece of that armor centers around being filled with Christ. And that's why Martin Luther wrote this powerful verse as part of A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, boy, did they battle him. We will not fear. For God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage, we can endure. For lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. Elders, as we wrap these thoughts up and bring Colossians 2 to the Lord's table, would you please come and begin to serve our body, the elements that represent his body and blood. Let me wrap up this thought with Christ is the supreme answer for every human dilemma. And I think these verses press, especially our worst conditions, for everyone who turns from sinning against God and believes in Christ and what he has done. Very quickly, because people are dead because of their sin, Christ died so he could raise us to life. Secondly, because people have built up an insurmountable debt of sin, Christ died so he could nail the whole list of them and cancel them all at the cross. And because people are bound in lifelong slavery to evil spirits and forces out to destroy them, Christ died and rose victorious over them so he could disarm them all. The power, Siegel says, of his cross has crushed everything that might threaten us. Hence the title, Supremacy of Christ over Death or Deadness, Sin and Enemies. 
And though this isn't stated in the text, we can deduce from this as well. Going even beyond those greatest, most critical needs, that when you have wounds and pain wrecking you in this life, his wounds through the cross are the thing that truly heal. And whatever your needs, physically, mentally, emotionally, Jesus Christ is sufficient for every one of them. Colossians 3.11 that we'll get to in a couple of months. Christ is all. All sufficient, all preeminent, all everything. And so Psalm 103 gives us these descriptions. Bless the Lord, which I want to encourage you as we come to the Lord's table. Bless, praise, worship, exalt the Lord, O my soul. And forget not, bring these often to your mind, all his benefits. And here's five of them. Starting with that preeminent one who forgives all your iniquity. Hallelujah. Who heals all your diseases. Every single one of them doesn't matter what it is. Hallelujah. Who redeems your life from the pit. Who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. How beautiful that is. And who satisfies you with good. So you're renewed. Praise his name. All of this. All of this. Conditioned on faith in Christ and him alone for salvation. No one goes to heaven to be with God unless Jesus Christ first makes you alive now. No one goes to heaven to enjoy God and life in heaven for all eternity unless Jesus Christ cancels your debt and forgives your sin. And no one gets to go to heaven and enjoy all of that unless Christ overthrows and disables the evil forces opposing you from being able to do that. 